0: Chapter Seventeen Sections Ten Eleven and Twelve of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter Seventeen Parts Ten 11, and 12. Section 10. Conquest of Susiana and Persis. Having rested his army in the luxurious and wonderful city of the Euphrates, the conqueror advanced southeastward to Susa, the summer residence of the Persian court. Susa had been already secured for him by Philozenus, whom he had dispatched hither from Arbella with some light troops. In the citadel, he found enormous treasures of gold and silver and purple, among other precious things at Susa was the sculpted group of the tyrant-slayers, Harmodius and Aristogiton, which Xerxes had carried off from athens and Alexander had the pleasure of sending back to its home this strange historical monument, now more precious than ever, through its own strange history, though it was midwinter, Alexander soon left Susa to accomplish one of the most arduous adventures that he ever undertook. He had won the treasures of Susa, but there were immense treasures still in the palaces of Cyrus and Darius, in the heart of the Persian highlands, and these were guarded not only by the difficulties of the mountainous approaches, but by the army which Ariobizanes had rescued from the overthrow of Gaugamela. Perhaps the reason for Alexander's haste in pressing on to Persis was the fear that Darius might descend with a new force from Media, if time were given him before Aureobizanes was crushed. But whatever were his reasons, it seemed to him of the greatest moment to secure Persis immediately. His road lay southeastward, and when he had crossed the river Pesitigris, the first obstacle that he encountered was the independent tribe of the Uxian hillsmen, of whom the Persian kings themselves were accustomed to bestow gifts for their good will. The barbarians held the passes through which the road lay but a night march by a difficult mountain path enabled Alexander to surprise them, and the Euxians henceforward were forced to pay yearly gifts to the lord of Asia, a hundred horses, five hundred drought oxen, and thirty thousand sheep. The Macedonian army was now in the midst of a region which was unknown to Greek charts. Alexander's advance is a march not only of conquest but of discovery, and opens a new epoch, in the history of geographical sciences by revealing Central Asia to the knowledge of Europe. Leaving half of his army with Parmenio to proceed more slowly along the main road, Alexander led the other half, including the Macedonians both horse and foot, by a shorter path through the hills to the narrow defile which formed the entrance to Persis and was called the Persian Gates. Ario was posted there with 40,000 foot and 700 horse, guarding the rocky pass which he had fortified by a wall. An attack, easily repelled, showed Alexander that the pass was unpregnable. Yet it must be carried, for this was the only road to the royal cities of Persia. For a moment Alexander was baffled. Never, perhaps, not even before Tyre, was he encountered by a problem more desperate to all seeming. But he learned from a prisoner of some extremely perilous paths leading round, through the forest which covered the mountains, to the back of the pass. At this season the snow made these paths more dangerous than ever, and they might well seem hopeless to men weighed down with heavy armor. But they were the only hope, and Alexander did not hesitate. He left Craterus with part of the troops in front of the pass, with orders to attack as soon as he heard the Macedonian trumpets, sounding from above on the other side. With the rest of his force, including most of the cavalry, three regiments of the Phalanx, the Hypasthus, and other light troops, he set forth at night, and marched quickly eleven miles along the precipitous snowy track, intersected frequently by deep gullies. When the point was reached at which he was to turn in order to descend on the Persian camp, he again divided his forces, and sent one division forward to bridge the river Araxes, and cut off the Persian retreat. Taking the Hypasthus, the royal squadron of the companions, One regiment of the phalanx and some light troops, he raced down upon the camp and destroyed or routed three successive sets of outposts before the day had dawned. Instead of raising the alarm, the sentinels scattered on the mountain, and when the Macedonian trumpets pealed on the brink of his entrenchments, Ariobizanes was taken completely by surprise. Attacked on both sides, in front by Craterus, who stormed up the wall of rock, and in the rear by Alexander, the Persians were cut to pieces, or fell over precipices in their flight. Ariobizanes with a small band escaped into the mountains. The royal palaces of Persia, to which Alexander now hurried with the utmost speed, stood in the valley of Mervdasht, fertile then, but desolate at the present day, and close to the city of Istakar, which the Persians deemed the oldest city in the world. In Istakhr itself, there was a royal house, too, but the great palaces stood some miles away, close beneath the mountain, upon a lofty platform against a background of black rock. The platform was mounted by magnificent staircases, and it bore, besides massive propylia, four chief buildings, the small palace of Darius, the larger palace of Xerxes, and two great pillowed halls. The impressive ruins tell a trained eye how to reconstruct the general plan of the royal abode and there can be no question that Achaemenian architecture had wrought here its greatest achievements, greater than the palace of Susa which Alexander had seen, greater than that of Ecbatana which he was soon to see. This cradle of the Persian kingdom, to which city and palace together the Greeks give the name of Persepolis, was the richest of all the cities under the sun. It is said that one hundred and twenty thousand talents were found in the treasury an army of mules and camels were required to remove the spoils. This store of gold, so long withdrawn from use, was now suddenly to be restored to circulation and perturbed the markets of the world. Not far off, two days' journey northward up the winding valley of the Murgab, was Pasargadai, the city of Cyrus. The maker of Persia built it close to the field, where he had shattered the host of the Median king and the place is still marked by his tomb, and the stones of other buildings, on some of which the traveler may read the words, I am Cyrus, the king, the Achamedian. In Parsegade, too, Alexander found a store of treasure. For four months he had made the Persian palaces his headquarters, during which time he received the submission of Carmania, or Kerman, and made some excursions to punish the robbers who infested the neighboring mountains but the most famous incident connected with the sojourn at Persepolis is the conflagration of the palace of Xerxes. The story is that, one night when Alexander and his companions were drunk deep at a royal festival, Thais an Attic courtesan, who was of the company, mindful of her country and all the wrongs which Xerxes had wrought, flung out among the tipsy carousers the idea of burning down the house of the malignant foe who had burned the temples of Greece. The mad words of the woman inspired a wild frenzy, and whirled the revelers forth armed with torches to accomplish the barbarous deed. Alexander hurled the first brand, and the cedar woodwork of the palace was soon in flames. But before the fire had done its work, the king's head was cool, and he commanded the fire to be quenched. It is folly to attempt to read into this act a deliberate policy. It was the wild freak of a moment repented the next. Section Eleven, Death of Darius. In the meantime, King Darius remained in Ecbatana, surrounded by the adherents who were faithful to him, chiefly the satraps of those lands which were still unconquered, Media itself, and Hyrcania, Arya and Bactria, Arachosia and Drangiana. It is probable that after the Gaugamela battle, Alexander hoped to receive some proposal from his defeated foe more submissive and acceptable than that which had been sent after Issus. He would have been ready, perhaps, to leave to Darius the eastern part of his dominions, with the royal title, though as a dependent vassal, and to content himself for a while with the empire which he had won, including Susa and Persepolis. It might have been with the hope of receiving overtures that he tarried so long in Persis. But Darius gave no sign. Media was defensible, he had a large army from the northern satrapies, and he had Bactria as a retreat, if retreat he must. The spring was advanced when Alexander left Persis for Ecbactana. The direct road did not lie by Susa, but much further east through the land of Paratacene. He made all speed, when the news reached him, by the way, that Darius was at Ecbactana with a large army, prepared to fight. But when, after a succession of forced marshes, he drew nigh to the city he found that Darius had flown eastward, following the women and heavy baggage which had been sent on to the Caspian gates, and taking the treasures with him. It is said that the reason of this retreat was the default of some Chaldaean and Scythian troops which had failed to arrive in time. When he reached the Median capital, Alexander was detained by the need of arranging certain matters before he pursued his rival into the northern wilds. He paid off the Thessalian troops, and the other Greek confederates, giving them a handsome donative, and a conduct to the Aegean. But any who chose to enroll themselves anew in his service, and share in his further course of conquest, might stay, and not a few stayed. Parmenio was entrusted with the care of seeing that the treasures of Persis were transported, and safely deposited, in the strong keep of Ecbactana, where they were to remain in charge for the treasurer, Harpalus, and a large body of Macedonian troops. Parmenio was then to proceed northward to Caduzia, and along the shores of the Caspian Sea, where he was to meet the king. With the main part of the army, Alexander hurried on, merciless to men and steeds, bent on the capture of Darius. His way lay by Regae, and when he reached that place, a little to the south of the modern capital of Persia, he found that the fugitive was already well beyond the Caspian gates which lie a long day's journey to the east. Despairing of overtaking him, Alexander rested some days at Regae, before he advanced towards Parthia through the Caspian Pass. But meanwhile, doom was stealing upon Darius by another way. His followers were beginning to suspect that ill luck dogged him, and when he proposed to stay and risk another battle, instead of continuing his retreat to Bactria, None were willing except the remnant of Greek mercenaries, who were still faithful to the man who had hired them, and perhaps dreaded punishment as recusants to the Greek cause. Bessus, the satrap of Bactria, was a kinsman of the king, and it was felt by many that he might be able to raise up again the Achaemenian house, which Darius had been unable to sustain. A plot was formed, Darius was seized, and bound in the middle of the night, set in a litter, and hurried on as a prisoner along the road to Bactria. This event disbanded his army. The Greek mercenaries went off northwards into the Caspian mountains, and many of the Persians turned back to find pardon and grace with Alexander. They found him encamped on the Parthian side of the Caspian gates, and told him the new turn of events. When he had learned that his old rival was a prisoner, and that Bessus was now his antagonist, Alexander resolved on a swift and hot pursuit. Leaving the main body of the army to come slowly after, he set forth at once with his cavalry and some light foot, and sped the whole night through, not resting till the next day at noon, and then another evening and night at the same breathless speed. Sunrise saw him at Thara. It was the place where the great king had been put in chains, and it was ascertained from his interpreter, who had remained behind ill, that Bessus and his followers intended to surrender Darius if the pursuit were pressed. There was the greater need for haste. The pursuers rode on throughout another night. Men and horses were dropping with fatigue. At noon they came to a village where the pursuit had halted the day before, and Alexander learnt that they intended to march in the night. He asked the people if there was no short way, and was told that there was a short way, but it was waterless. Alexander instantly dismounted five hundred of his horsemen, and gave their steeds to the officers and the strongest men of the infantry who were with them. With these he started in the morning, and having ridden some forty-five miles, came up with the enemy at break of day. The barbarians were straggling, many of them unarmed. A few who made a stand were swept away, but most of them fled when they saw that it was Alexander. Bessus and his fellow conspirators bade their prisoner, no longer seemingly in chains, mount a horse, and when Darius refused, they stabbed him and rode their ways, wounding the litter mules too and killing the drivers. The beasts, sore and thirsty, strayed about half a mile from the road down a side valley, where they were found at a spring by a Macedonian who came to slake his thirst. The great king was near his last gasp. If he could have spoken Greek, or if the stranger had understood Persian, he might have found words to send a message of thanks to his conqueror, for the generous treatment of his wife and mother, who were then assuredly in his thoughts. Afterwards, men had no scruple in placing appropriate words in the mouth of the dying monarch. It is enough to believe that he had solace of a cup of water in his supreme moments, and thanked the Macedonian soldier by a sign. Alexander viewed the body, and was said to have thrown his own cloak over it in pity. It was part of his fair luck that he had found Darius dead, for if he had taken him alive, he would not have put him to death and such a captive would have been a perpetual embarrassment, he sent the corpse with all honor to the queen-mother, the last of the Achaemenian kings, buried with his forefathers at Persepolis. Section 12. Spirit of Alexander's Policy as Lord of Asia. Before we follow Alexander on his marches of conquest and discovery into the regions, which were then in European eyes the Far East, we may pause to observe his attitudes as ruler and king. For the months which passed between the battle of Gaugamela and the death of Darius were a critical period, which witnessed a remarkable change in his conception of his duty and in his political aims. From the very beginning, he had shown to the conquered peoples a tolerance which was not only promoted by generosity, but upon political wisdom. He had not attempted to apply an artificial scheme to all countries, but had permitted each country to retain its national institutions. One general principle, indeed, he did adopt the division of power, and this was a notable improvement on the Persian method. Under the Persian kingdom, a satrap was usually sole governor, controlling not only the civil administration, but the treasury and the troops. Alexander, in most cases, committed the internal administration to the governor and appointed with him and, independent of his authority, a financial officer and military commander. This division of authority was a security against rebellion. We have already seen in Egypt and Babylonia that, in manners of religion, Alexander was, like all Greeks, broad-minded and tolerant. But the Macedonian king, the commander-in-chief of the Greek confederates, had set forth as a champion of Greeks against mere barbarians as a leader of Europeans against effeminate Asiatics, as representative of a higher folk against beings lower in the human chain. All the Macedonians and Greeks who followed him regarded the East as a world to be plundered and rifled by their higher intelligence and courage, and considered the Orientals as inferior, set by nature to be their own slaves. Slaves by nature they showed to the political wisdom by Aristotle himself, Alexander's teacher, and the victories of Issus and Galgamela were calculated to confirm the Europeans in their sense of unmeasured superiority. But, as Alexander advanced, his view expanded, and he rose to a loftier conception of his own position and his relation to Asia. He began to transcend the familiar distinction of Greek and barbarian, and to see that, for all the truth it contained, it was not the last word that could be said. He formed the notion of an empire, both European and Asiatic, in which the Asiatics should not be dominated by the European invaders, but Europeans and Asiatics alike should be ruled on an equality by a monarch, indifferent to the distinction of Greek and barbarian, and looked upon as their own king by Persians as well as by Macedonians. The idea begins to show itself after the Battle of Gaugamela. The Persian lords and satraps who submit are received with favor and confidence. Alexander learns to know and appreciate the fine qualities of the Iranian noblemen. Some of the eastern provinces are entrusted to Persian satraps, for example, Babylonian to and the court of Alexander ceases to be purely European. With Oriental courtiers, the forms of an Oriental court are also gradually introduced. The Asiatics prostrate themselves before the lord of Asia, and presently Alexander adopts the dress of a Persian king at court ceremonies, in order to appear less a foreigner in the eyes of his eastern subjects. The idea which prompted this policy was new and bold, and it harmonized with the great work of Alexander, the breaking down of barriers between east and west. But it was accompanied by a certain imperious self-exaltation, which we do not find in the earlier part of Alexander's career, and it involved him in troubles with his own folk. The Macedonians strongly disapproved of their king's new path. They disliked the rival influence of the Asiatic nobles, and their prejudices were shocked at seeing Alexander occasionally assume oriental robes. The Macedonian royalty was indeed inadequate for Alexander's imperial position. But it is unfortunate that he had no other model than the royalty of Persia hedged round by forms which were so distasteful to the free spirit of Greece. The life of Alexander was spent in solving difficult problems, political and military, and none was harder than this, to create a kingship which should conciliate the prejudices of the East without offending the prejudices of the West. End of chapter 17, section 10, 11, and 12.